Counter Rev Audio. May 2021. The New World Order by H.G. Wells. This edition published by Project Gutenberg Australia in 2004. Produced by Don Lainson and updated by Roy Glashen. Originally published by Secker and Warburg, London, 1940. Chapter 1, The End of an Age. In this small book I want to set down as compactly, clearly and usefully as possible the gist of what I have learnt about war and peace in the course of my life. I am not going to write peace propaganda here. I am going to strip down certain general ideas and realities of primary importance to their framework, and so prepare a nucleus of useful knowledge for those who have to go on with this business of making a world peace. I am not going to persuade people to say yes, yes, for a world peace, already we have had far too much abolition of war by making declarations and signing resolutions, everybody wants peace or pretends to want peace, and there is no need to add even a sentence more to the vast volume of such ineffective stuff. I am simply attempting to state the things we must do and the price we must pay for world peace if we really intend to achieve it. Until the Great War, the First World War, one did not bother very much about war and peace. Since then I have almost specialized upon this problem. It is not very easy to recall former states of mind out of which, day by day and year by year, one has grown, but I think that in the decades before 1914 not only I but most of my generation in the British Empire, America, France and indeed throughout most of the civilized world thought that war was dying out. So it seemed to us. It was an agreeable and therefore a readily acceptable idea. We imagined the Franco-German War of 1870-71 and the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78 were the final conflicts between great powers, that now there was a balance of power sufficiently stable to make further major warfare impracticable. A triple alliance faced a dual alliance and neither had much reason for attacking the other. We believed war was shrinking to mere expeditionary affairs on the outskirts of our civilization, a sort of frontier police business. Habits of tolerant intercourse, it seemed, were being strengthened every year that the peace of the powers remained unbroken. There was indeed a mild armament race going on, mild by our present standards of equipment, the armament industry was a growing and enterprising on, but we did not see the full implication of that, we preferred to believe that the increasing general good sense would be strong enough to prevent these multiplying guns from actually going off and hitting anything. And we smiled indulgently at uniforms and parades and army manoeuvres. They were the time-honored toys and regalia of kings and emperors. They were part of the display side of life and would never get to actual destruction and killing. I do not think that exaggerates the easy complacency of, let us say, 1895, 45 years ago. It was a complacency that lasted with most of us up to 1914. In 1914 hardly anyone in Europe or America below the age of 50 had seen anything of war in his own country. The world before 1900 seemed to be drifting steadily towards a tacit but practical unification. One could travel without a passport over the larger part of Europe, the postal union delivered one's letters uncensored and safely from Chile to China, money, based essentially on gold, fluctuated only very slightly, and the sprawling British Empire still maintained a tradition of free trade, equal treatment and open-handedness to all comers round and about the planet. In the United States you could go for days and never see a military uniform. Compared with today that was, upon the surface at any rate, an age of easygoing safety and good humor. Particularly for the North Americans and the Europeans. 
but apart from that steady, ominous growth of the armament industry there were other and deeper forces at work that were preparing trouble. The foreign offices of the various sovereign states had not forgotten the competitive traditions of the 18th century. The admirals and generals were contemplating with something between hostility and fascination, the hunger weapons the steel industry was gently pressing into their hands. Germany did not share the self-complacency of the English-speaking world, she wanted a place in the sun, there was increasing friction about the partition of the raw material regions of Africa, the British suffered from chronic Russophobia with regard to their vast apportions in the east, and set themselves to nurse Japan into a modernized imperialist power, and also they remembered Majiba. The United States were irritated by the disorder of Cuba and felt that the weak, extended Spanish possessions would be all the better for a change of management. So the game of power politics went on, but it went on upon the margins of the prevailing peace. There were several wars and changes of boundaries, but they involved no fundamental disturbance of the general civilized life, they did not seem to threaten its broadening tolerations and understandings in any fundamental fashion. Economic stresses and social trouble stirred and muttered beneath the orderly surfaces of political life, but threatened no convulsion. The idea of altogether eliminating war, of clearing what was left of it away, was in the air, but it was free from any sense of urgency. The Hague Tribunal was established and there was a steady dissemination of the conceptions of arbitration and international law. It really seemed to many that the peoples of the earth were settling down in their various territories to a litigious rather than a belligerent order. If there was much social injustice it was being mitigated more and more by a quickening sense of social decency. Acquisitiveness conducted itself with decorum and public-spiritedness was in fashion. Some of it was quite honest public-spiritedness. In those days, and they are hardly more than half a lifetime behind us, no one thought of any sort of world administration. That patchwork of great powers and small powers seemed the most reasonable and practicable method of running the business of mankind. Communications were far too difficult for any sort of centralized world controls. Around the world in 80 days, when it was published 70 years ago, seemed an extravagant fantasy. It was a world without telephone or radio, with nothing swifter than a railway train or more destructive than the earlier types of HE shell. They were marvels. It was far more convenient to administer that world of the balance of power in separate national areas and, since there were such limited facilities for peoples to get at one another and do each other mischiefs, there seemed no harm in ardent patriotism and the complete independence of separate sovereign states. Economic life was largely directed by irresponsible private businesses and private finance which, because of their private ownership, were able to spread out their unifying transactions in a network that paid little attention to frontiers and national, racial or religious sentimentality. Business was much more of a world commonwealth than the political organizations. There were many people, especially in America, who imagined that business might ultimately unify the world and government sink into subordination to its network. Nowadays we can be wise after the event and we can see that below this fair surface of things, disruptive forces were steadily gathering strength. But these disruptive forces played a comparatively small role in the world spectacle of half a century ago, when the ideas of that older generation which still dominates our political life and the political education of its successors, were formed. It is from the conflict of those balance of power and private enterprise ideas, half a century old, that one of the main stresses of our time arises. 
These ideas worked fairly well in their period and it is still with extreme reluctance that our rulers, teachers, politicians, face the necessity for a profound mental adaptation of their views, methods and interpretations to these disruptive forces that once seemed so negligible and which are now shattering their old order completely. It was because of this belief in a growing goodwill among nations, because of the general satisfaction with things as they were, that the German declarations of war in 1914 aroused such a storm of indignation throughout the entire comfortable world. It was felt that the German Kaiser had broken the tranquility of the world club, wantonly and needlessly. The war was fought against the Hohenzollerns. They were to be expelled from the club, certain punitive fines were to be paid and all would be well. That was the British idea of 1914. This out-of-date war business was then to be cleared up once for all by a mutual guarantee by all the more respectable members of the club through a League of Nations. There was no apprehension of any deeper operating causes in that great convulsion on the part of the worthy elder statesman who made the peace. And so Versailles and its codicils. For twenty years the disruptive forces have gone on growing beneath the surface of that genteel and shallow settlement, and twenty years there has been no resolute attack upon the riddles with which their growth confronts us. For all that period of the League of Nations has been the opiate of liberal thought in the world. Today there is war to get rid of Adolf Hitler, who has now taken the part of the Hohenzollerns in the drama. He too has outraged the club rules and he too is to be expelled. The war, the Chamberlain-Hitler war, is being waged so far by the British Empire in quite the old spirit. It has learnt nothing and forgotten nothing. There is the same resolute disregard of any more fundamental problem. Still the minds of our comfortable and influential ruling class people refuse to accept the plain intimation that their time is over, that the balance of power and uncontrolled business methods cannot continue, and that Hitler, like the Hohenzollerns, is a mere offensive pustule on the face of a deeply ailing world. To get rid of him and his Nazis will be no more a cure for the world's ills than scraping will heal measles. The disease will manifest itself in some new eruption. It is the system of nationalist individualism and uncoordinated enterprise that is the world's disease, and it is the whole system that has to go. It has to be reconditioned down to its foundations or replaced. It cannot hope to muddle through amiably, wastefully and dangerously, a second time. World peace means all that much revolution. More and more of us begin to realize that it cannot mean less. The first thing, therefore, that has to be done in thinking out the primary problems of world peace is to realize this, that we are living in the end of a definite period of history, the period of the sovereign states. As we used to say in the 80s with ever-increasing truth, we are in an age of transition. Now we get some measure of the acuteness of the transition. It is a phase of human life which may lead, as I am trying to show, either to a new way of living for our species or else to a longer or briefer degringolade of violence, misery, destruction, death and the extinction of mankind. These are not rhetorical phrases I am using here, I mean exactly what I say, the disastrous extinction of mankind. That is the issue before us. It is no small affair of parlor politics we have to consider. As I write, in the moment, thousands of people are being killed, wounded, hunted, tormented, ill-treated, delivered up to the most intolerable and hopeless anxiety and destroyed morally and mentally, and there is nothing in sight at present to arrest this spreading process and prevent its reaching you and yours. It is coming for you and yours now at a great pace. Plainly in so far as we are rational foreseeing creatures there is nothing for any of us now but to make this world peace problem the ruling interest and direction of our lives. If we run away from it it will pursue and get us. We have to face it. 
we have to solve it or be destroyed by it. It is as urgent and comprehensive as that.